Hey church, my name is Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. Will you please meet me in Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. I would like to read that verse and then pray. I'm going to read that verse and then pray and we'll get right to it. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God, our great, great God, we cry out to you. We look to you. We long for you. We ache. Father, with all of creation. We're so desperate for you. Oh Lord, even in this desperation, we've spent so much of our week on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram searching for eternal things. Forgive me, Father, forgive us. We've looked for them in common knowledge and earthly wisdom. We've looked for hope. We've longed for it and have failed to come to you. And so, God, we cry out to you now, perhaps for the first time in a long time. So, God, we thank you that when we cry out to you, you hear us. What a God that you hear us. We come to you in incredible complexity, incredible pain, in the middle of a lot of uncertainty and lament and suffering and grief, perhaps in the middle of ambivalence, of disregard and a lack of empathy. We come to you cold, we come to you distant. And so, Father, I thank you, I worship you that you are the God who we can come to in these myriad of different ways if we would come humbly. If we would come. We thank you that we who are weary and heavy laden can come to you, namely through your son and find rest. And so Father, we long for rest today through your word. So help me. Help me to be clear, help me to be responsible, and may we as a people be united through your word for your good purposes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to lie to you, church. It was really hard to find the words this week. There's so many times all I was doing was looking at a blank computer screen and seeing that line flash back at me. So many times I would read some book searching for an idea, a thought, something to hang on, and I'd come back empty with really nothing to work with. There were some days, whether it was just the hustle of being a dad or the hustle of trying to do the other things that come with pastoral ministry in a time like this, and I just would have no energy to open the word, to try to write a sermon and so the words just did not come quickly this week. Many times, in fact, I just left the idea alone for a day or longer and just allowed and tried to listen. It was hard. It was a hard week. I don't know about you, but it feels like even in the middle of all of that, every few seconds, I feel this impulse to look at my phone to see what I've missed over the past few seconds because things seem to be changing that quickly, updating that quickly, having an impact that quickly. And so I constantly felt that. But I think overall I felt this, this pressure, which I think I constantly do, but it just was more acute this week. I, I, want, I wanted to be able to put together something for you, for you, my brothers, my sisters, that spoke to what we were going through. It spoke directly to it. And yet something 
that I hoped would, would not just be for this moment, but that would give a hope that would go well beyond this light and momentary affliction. It's amazing that's what the scriptures call that we, what we go through in life. One impulse that I had is I wanted to speak to you, my church family, in the moment. I wanted to be in what we're going through together. I want to speak to you about what we're in, what we're facing, what we're looking at, what, what we're experiencing. I wanted to speak with you, my black brothers and sisters, and I wanted to grieve. I wanted to lament and cry out. I wanted to listen. I wanted to learn to be an advocate and an ally. I wanted to learn when to speak and when to be quiet. I wanted to speak with you, my brothers and sisters of color, and similarly to grieve and lament, to lock arms with you, to cry out on your behalf and with you to the Lord. I wanted to listen. I wanted to learn. I wanted to know how to be an ally for you with you. I wanted to speak with you, my white brothers and sisters, and consider together and call us together to silence at times, to speaking up at other times, and to always be a people of action. I wanted to give us a gospel handle for our moment. I want to be thinking about what we're in the middle of and to consider what does it mean to consider, think about Jesus in the middle of all of this. Think about his word. Because this moment that we're in, it's not new. As, as I've considered this and spoken with many of you and walked through, th this is not a new moment. At least it's, it's not unique yet. See, like the persistent absence of justice for Breonna Taylor, when Fred Hampton was shot, by law enforcement officers. There was demonstrations and there were never any arrests. There's still no arrests. Like the months long delay that we have experienced about any kind of justice for Ahmaud Aubrey, James Chaney's body remained hidden for 44 days in a Mississippi pit in 1964. Like the criminal disregard for life, stealing the last breath out of George Floyd's lungs, we can still hear, can't we, the voice of Eric Gardner saying, I can't breathe. Like the countless names, not in any headlines because a camera wasn't there at their execution. So too, many black bodies, men and women, remain in graves for whom no justice in this life was ever achieved. What I'm trying to say, what I'm, what, I, what I'm feeling at the heart and hoping to make clear with my words is there seems to be this recurring cycle of demonstration, of angst, of rising up. And yet the dream of equality continues to remain elusive. And if I sense that, I cannot imagine how much you, my black brothers and sisters and people of color, my, my friends and my neighbors are feeling. As one of your elders, as one of your pastors, I, I desperately wanted to speak to you about that. But I also wanted to speak to you from God's word. I wanted to speak to you about his brilliant character, how as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in him we see brilliant harmony. And a blueprint, a pattern, the architecture, if you will, of what we are meant to be as a people, united yet diverse. I wanted to speak to you about white Jesus. How we've seen this, this image conjured up in evangelical consciousness that really and fully defies the name of God's son. I want to speak to us about the gospel's power to save and to heal and to restore and to mend. I want to speak to you about how we're supposed to see this, not just in our moment, but in an eternal perspective of power and of healing and of stability and of joy and of hope. Because if the tomb is empty, if Jesus truly has risen from the dead, then he always speaks a better word, even in the face of injustice 
and violent death. I want to point our gaze to this horizon where one day Jesus will return and he'll bring heaven with him. And in fact, the scriptures tell us that he will have tattoos on his thighs that say King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will ride in on a horse and wipe away every tear and all shall be well. I want to deliver a a word that's timeless and timely. Something that is eternal and yet touches us in this moment. That's what I long for now. How about you? Are you with me in this? That we want something that isn't just for this moment, but does speak to this moment, but endures well beyond it. And as I felt these dual impulses pulling at me this week, sometimes I would give attention to one and other times attention to the other about what I wanted to say and where I wanted to go. I heard that very gentle and kind, but very stern and clear voice of God say, stop thinking about what you want to say. Let me speak to my people. And so I'm here to tell you today that the Lord met me in my tension. That the Lord met me in that dual impulse of wanting to identify and speak with you in this, but to speak from his word. He has been kind, he has been gracious, and he has been clear. So we come to Romans chapter 1, verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that in this particular verse, God will say something to us that is timeless and he will make it plain for our current moment in time. Paul's going to tell us three things, three things about our own nature that are timeless. If you remember, Paul has introduced himself. He said that he's an apostle. He said that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. And then he introduces us to Christ, that that Jesus Christ is the son who is Messiah and Lord. And as we incline our ear now over the the span of 2000 years, we will overhear Paul speaking to his readers in Rome in the first century, both Jew and Gentile, many of whom are new converts to the faith, new Christians who have recently come to know, love, and follow Jesus. And he'll say to them three things about who they are. Paul is now going to speak to his readers about his readers. And as we incline our ear, we will hear God's voice speaking to us about us, about who we are in him. Three things. He'll say that we are beloved of God, that we are called by God, and that we are saints of God. And each would have been striking in the ears of Paul's Roman readers, and they ought to be striking in ours as well. First, if you remember in verse six, as we look at the first thing that Paul says, in verse six, Paul has said that including you who are called to belong to Jesus. So he's speaking directly to these these readers. And what does he say here in verse seven? To all those then that he carries on, right? They don't belong to Jesus, but to all those in Rome who are loved by God. To know we are loved by God is one of the most fundamental and elemental things about who we are. And yet it's one of the most profound things we could ever consider about ourselves, that we are loved. I wonder if when you think about yourself as one of the first things that comes to your mind that you are loved, that you belong to Christ and you are loved by him. I confess to you, I don't. And I need to, the scriptures and the way they inform my mind about how I ought to consider myself One of the things, and in fact, here it's primary in Paul's recollection in the way that he tells his readers who they are, that we are are loved. And perhaps when you think about the love of God, you think about John 3, 16. Those of you who grew up in the church in your childhood, perhaps this is one of the first verses that you memorized. If you were around the local church at all as a kid, you likely heard this verse. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. That God is a God of love and that he loves the world. He loves people that he has created. See, while we might belittle this concept of God's affection for humanity, that his love for his people is one simply for children, for this sort of childlike and elementary 
faith. The reality is, is that these words were not spoken by nor spoken to a child. They were spoken by the son of the living God, and they were spoken to a very highly educated man in the Hebrew Bible. See, the love of God is basic, but it is not for children only. In fact, it is the most elemental way that the scriptures identify and help us understand who God is. So in 1 John, Chapter 4, verse 7, the writer reminds us, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, and God know, and knows God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because hear this, church, God is love. Notice here, as in Romans chapter one, the believer is known as the beloved, the beloved of God. And as the beloved of God, we become a people of love. Those whom God has loved, therefore then live with love toward one another and to the world. And how does this happen? Well, we're told that God himself is love. And please notice, love is not God. To, to, to have this sort of human emotion and even action of love is not divine. Rather, the very nature of God is described, defined by love. Think about that. All the things that regularly come to mind when we think about God, some positive, some negative, some perhaps frustrating to us or uncomprehensive, we can't, can't understand, we don't understand those things about him. And yet fundamental to he is are not these high and lofty concepts, which are all helpful and good at times, but really it's love. If we want to understand who God is, we should understand that God is love. In fact, uh, one Spanish mystic or theologian, St. John of the Cross, said God refuses to be known except by love. God refuses to be known except by love. So God himself is love and his people are loved by him. But what do we, what do we know about this love? What, what specifically, what exactly is divine love? Well, first we have to acknowledge that God's love for humanity is an overflow of a love shared, of love that he has shared eternally within himself, the Trinity. Another way of thinking about this is that divine love is not reactionary. Love is not God's response to his creation. Love is not his response to people. Rather, his love is fundamental to who he is. So in creation, we see that the love of God is demonstrated because first and foremost, he is not creating beings to love him, but rather to enjoy his love. God is not creating beings to love him, but rather he is creating humanity, reflecting his image. God is creating humanity to enjoy his love. Theologian Michael Reeves makes that really clear when he writes, um, this, God's love is creative. Love comes first. He gives life and being as a free gift for his very life, being and goodness is yeasty, spreading out that there might be more that is truly good. This is precisely how John could go on in 1 John chapter 4 and tell us we love because he first loved us. God's love is not reactionary to our existence, nor is it reactionary to our love for him. It's the exact opposite. Our existence and love for God are both products of his affection for us. Let's not miss this. That our existence and love for God are direct products of his affection for us. We love because he first loved us. We are beloved by him. The scope of God's affection, therefore, cannot be overstated. We can't speak too much, too lofty, or too greatly about his love. See, not only does his love come first, but his love comes without condition. Can I get an amen? His love does not just come first, it comes without condition. It is bestowed upon us without qualification, nor any opportunity to pay him back for his love, nor could it ever be lost by our inaction or inability or by our sin or foolishness or shame. How could God make such a claim? How could God make such a claim that it is possible to bestow upon human beings a kind of love without condition? Well, I think there's two reasons. One, he could do it because he already knows every condition you could ever give him a reason why he shouldn't love you. He knows that fully. See, we're not just 
fully loved by God in Christ, but we're fully known in him as well. So he can love without condition because he already sees every condition possible and he gives us that love anyway. See, nothing you have ever done surprised him and made him rethink his love for you. How good is that? Not only so, but the other reason why God can give us an unconditional kind of love is because his love is not hanging on your shoulders. His love is not dependent upon your action. His love is not dependent upon your affection. His love is not dependent upon your righteousness or mine. Rather, his love hangs on the very shoulders of his son and his righteousness. Therefore, because the persistent faithfulness of Jesus has been bestowed upon us, therefore the affection of our heavenly father is given to us as a seal and guarantee forever. We are beloved. And it's this kind of grand affection that is both initial, it comes first, and also unconditional, that Paul then writes in Romans chapter 8, one of the most brilliant paragraphs in history. So turn to the right to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Romans 8, verse 31. We'll read it to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are beloved in Christ. And though this may seem so simple, we will never tire of the beauty and the fullness of his affections throughout our entire life. This is our timeless nature, wrapped up in the timeless character, merit, love, affection, and grace of our God. That's the first thing. The second thing that Paul tells us about ourselves is that we are called, look again back at Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Romans 1, verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called. And called. This is significant for readers to hear because Paul has already described himself as called. He explained himself as one who had been called by God, which perhaps in the first century or even now in the 21st, we could acknowledge that someone who is special like Paul, who is an apostle, lofty apostle, of course, he's been called by God. But, but Paul takes that doctrine of calling and places it upon every follower of Jesus. See, in verse 6, he, he, he does it twice, actually. In verse 6, he says that we're called to belong to Jesus Christ. And now in verse 7, he writes that we are called to be saints. Let's be clear. It is God who calls. The context in this passage and the whole Bible leaves this question without doubt. However, theologically, there are two different kinds of ways that we are called or two different kinds of callings that are present within the scriptures that we ought to reflect upon to understand the fullness of what Paul is saying. There's a universal or general call that goes out whenever the word of God, particularly the gospel, is proclaimed. When the good news of who Jesus is, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus lived perfectly, that Jesus died sacrificially, that Jesus was buried literally, that Jesus rose victoriously and ascended authoritatively to be Lord over the living and the dead. When that goes out, a general call from the mouth of a preacher, a proclaimer of the good news, a call goes out that men and women must be saved. They must come to Jesus, repent of their sins, and and, and come to him as Lord. And yet, there is a unique thing that takes place from that general call or that universal call to what theologians call the effectual call. The effectual call is not a calling of an orator or a preacher, but rather only and always done by God's spirit. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones explains that it is the Spirit alone who can make the Word effectual. In other words, what you and I are hearing now is only effectual through the work of the Spirit. This is particularly true when it comes to saving faith, when it comes to understanding and acknowledging first who we are in our sin and then by God's grace, who we are by grace and forgiveness in the work of Christ in Him. That's the difference. And this is why Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Through the proclamation of the gospel, all are called to repentance and to come to faith, but only through God's spirit are some called to be saints. What Paul then is saying in verses six and seven is that the people he is writing to are those who are loved by God and therefore called by God to belong to Jesus and be his people. This is who you are. This is who I am. This is probably most, the best way to put it, this is who we are, that we are beloved, that we are called by God. We could not love him first in as much as that we could not call ourselves to him because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. This is the inescapable idea that Paul anchors his gospel proclamation in in Ephesians chapter 2. Why don't you meet me there? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Flip to the right, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians, then you'll get to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Here's why we couldn't love first. Here's why we couldn't call ourselves. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, are you with me in this? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. There's that calling together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are beloved and we are called. And notice This calling is to something, or perhaps better, to someone, namely to God and a status which is in Christ. We are not just called away from death, not just to become something new, but most importantly, as it's stated in verse 6, to belong to Christ and with Christ. We are called to someone. We are called to remain in relationship with him. And like his love, the calling of God endures well beyond this age. And therefore, the writer of Revelation could say, Revelation 17, verse 14, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. This is our timeless nature as the people of God wrapped up in the timeless nature of God himself. Those who have been loved, those who have been called, we are his forever. The third and last thing that Paul says that we'll look at, Romans chapter 1 verse 7 again, is that we're saints to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This is specifically what we've been called to in Christ. But perhaps we need to work a little bit on what first comes to our mind when we think about that word. When we think, I imagine, when we think about the word saint or saints, we think about individual saints who have been canonized in a particular stream of faith. Those who have, during their life and even after their life, endured rigorous religious tests and consideration. They perform miracles and they've been persistent in joy their entire lives. These are dubbed as saints. However, what's fascinating is that the word for saint or hagios in the New Testament, when referring to redeemed humanity, is never in the singular form. It's always in the plural. In other words, the way that Paul uses it here is the way that it's always used of people throughout the entire New Testament. It's used of a people, not of a 
person. Notice in Paul's usage here, he is speaking to all of his readers. In Christ, they are all saints. Their identity as saints is bound up together, not in their individual canonization, but rather in their collective set-apartness in Christ, because that's what the word means in its fullest sense. It means to be holy or set apart in terms of distinction and consecration. It's about identity, not about morality, first and foremost. This is the very reason that we cannot be uh, separated from the love of God as Paul has described it in Romans chapter 8. Because we've been set apart, we cannot be separated from him because we are separated with him. We can't be separated from the one who we have been separated for. See, Martin Lloyd-Jones explains it in such a brilliant way. Everything that could ever separate us from God, we have been separated from. Everything that we could that could ever separate us from God, we have been separated from. We have been made holy. We have been made set apart. We have been called to be saints. This is who we are, not just what we do. But because this is who we are, therefore, because of what God has done in his love and his calling and in this saint, this holiness that he has produced in us, therefore, we live with distinction in the world. You might say we live timelessly and timely. We live in light of heaven, but we do so on earth. Though our hearts are given over to Christ, our minds, our hearts, our very being are very much connected with what the Lord is doing right here and now. See, we are saints because we are not of this world. We are to live set apart from evil. John again tells us in his first epistle to be very careful about our affection and love for this world. He's not talking about loving people or God's creation. He's talking about having an infatuation for the temporal, having an infatuation with the spirits of this dark and evil age and not being fully given over to Christ. First John chapter two, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Notice again, this is a timeless and eternal quality of who we are, those who are in Christ. But we are not only supposed to abstain from these sinful desires in life. But we, we are not just saints in that we're separated from something, but we are saints because we are separated for something. Namely, we are saints because we are with God or we are of the Lord. We are to live set apart for righteousness. Peter speaks of this duality in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12 about our holy nature as a people collectively. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, until the day of visitation gives us a picture, this is an eternal identifying marker of the people of God. A holy people, chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people set apart for his own possession. See, the calling to be saints, to live these holy lives of righteousness is timeless. It's who we're always supposed to and going to be. But remember, this is not an individual identity. Our sainthood, if you will, our holiness, the distinction and separation from sin and for righteousness is an identity that you and I share together. We are in that together. So the fullness of this communal identity, though, when we step back, is even grander. When we, when we consider the whole, if, if you will, when we just step into this cathedral of words that Paul has just lofted, lofted over us, and we behold that we're loved by God, that we're called by God, we're saints of God. What Paul is doing is using language of God's people throughout its entire history of all of Israel. See, 
These were words used in the Old Testament to describe Israel, to describe God's people. So what Paul is doing is he's not just connecting readers to one another, that they are all loved by God, they are all um, called by God, and that they are all saints of God, but rather he's doing it for all peoples at all times. He's connecting particularly, I think, his Gentile Christian readers with the age-old people of God throughout all of history. You see the love of God, being called by God, being saints of God, unites us as a people together forever in Christ. This is who we are. We are not a collection of individually saved persons. We are a people. We are God's people, Peter tells us. This is what Paul unpacks and packs in to just a few words for us as he introduces us, his readers, to ourselves. We are loved. We are called. We are saints. And not just us, but all believers for all time have been bound together in this work of Christ. That's the timeless nature of who we are as God's people. That's the timeless word that I believe that God desires to bring to us his church today. Yet as we consider that and we consider the whole, we realize that we are trapped in a generational sin. See, throughout all of Israel's history, they acted like they weren't loved. They acted like they weren't called. They acted like they weren't holy unto God. Instead, they sought their own glory and tried to act and identify with other nations, other people. I'd like to suggest to you humbly that what we are seeing carried out today is a a matter of injustice, which is squarely an indictment against God's people who have not functioned and operated out of our timeless identity that we have been bound together as those loved unconditionally, those called by grace, and those set apart for holiness in God. Let me say that what we are facing today in large measure is due in fact because the church has not been the church. Loved by God, called by God, set apart by God for his purposes, saints holy. In other words, we too have sinned. And may I continue humbly to suggest especially for those of us who operate and identify with the white church experience, we must not begin with solutions and fixes. We must begin with confession. See, what I have witnessed in the past couple of weeks in a church is a church desperately looking for ways to be a part of the solution, which is good. We praise God for that impulse. But sometimes we offer these timeless fixes that fly over the reality of injustice. And yet at other times we offer fixes in the moment that are really just baked with earthly wisdom and has nothing of the gospel, nothing of the power of God. In many ways, we begin to offer solutions and try to be a part of the solution without ever admitting that we have been part of the problem, that we have been part of the sin. And in order to see the enduring and immediate power of God, I think come down in our midst, we must begin with confession. I'll go first. I'm a white 37 year old pastor. I want to simply tell you that I'm not a racist and I want to end the conversation there. I want to share a black square on Instagram and move on. I want to stand in solidarity and claim maturity and wokeness. I want to say, look at my friends. I don't hate anybody. I want to defend myself. There's so much in me that wants to just defend myself. Alas, this is merely earthly morality. To simply defend that there is no sin in me is foolishness and a lie from the pit of hell. It's a cloak of evil, veneer of righteousness. 
My friends, I'm telling you today, I don't want to be moral. I want to be holy. I want to be holy unto God. I, I want to obey the word that we have just heard. And so lo, the Lord has made clear to me all week that I, I must confess. I must confess to you, my church family. And I choose not metaphorical language when I tell you that I've wept over these words, over my sin as I typed and prayed. God has made clear to me through his word that racial reconciliation in particular and the kingdom of God in general does not advance in this world by redirecting the conversation, but through reconciliation, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration that only comes from him. And so I confess that I have often neglected confession because I'm too busy trying to prove to my black friends and friends of color that I'm more woke than their other white friends and other white people. Shamefully, I tried to do this by talking about white people as if I'm not one. I tried to do this by speaking above white people like I understand the culture better than anybody else. I tried to do this by name dropping black and brown artists and writers politicians, musicians, and comedians that I follow as if to love black culture means that I necessarily love black people. I confess that I trust that saying these things makes me a safe ally and immune from the evils of racism. What's more, I think that the diversity of my friendships proves the purity of my heart. When in reality, the Bible teaches that proximity has no effect on my heart, in matters of righteousness, but only repentance, reconciliation, and submission to Christ. I confess that I can show up to protests and share posts online more out of fear at the prospect of not being seen as engaged rather than out of love and compassion and righteous indignation at the present evil ravaging the lives of my black friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters. What the Lord has revealed is that ultimately that's from a fear of man present in my soul, which I know that the Lord abhors. Fear never makes one wise, nor does it produce courage and advocacy. I'm asking the Lord to make my heart new in that. I confess that I have benefited from white supremacy, even though I have never intellectually trumpeted their virtues. I may never have espoused and even vehemently opposed things like slavery, but I've never faced the inevitability that my ancestors from Jones County, Mississippi, Mississippi most assuredly had slaves or benefited from the slave trade. I want to hide behind stories that I've read and heard from my, about my grandfather or my grandmother's grandfather, Jasper Collins, who worked against the Confederacy in the late 19th century to free the whole county from slavery. I want to put distance of years between me and the shame of slavery so that I don't have to face any prejudice or the fact that, that I may and that who I am in opportunity, in family, finance, and culture was produced in part through the evils of slavery. I don't want to face that. I confess that the powers of white supremacy are still invisible to me because I continue to benefit from them and therefore don't question their existence. When black men and women are shot and killed, I don't feel my life nor the life of my children more in peril because I've always gotten a call back from every job for which I've applied. I've never been passed up for an opportunity because of the color of my skin. Not only so, but I get so caught up in my own white cultural preferences that I can act as though I don't have a culture at all, that I'm just normal. And that my family and my ways of thinking and living are, are baseline and of culture and that every other culture is a deviation from what is normal. It's like the wind is at my back and I never question it because it makes my life easier. Therefore, I don't have to admit and acknowledge its existence. 
I confess that I often think colorblindness is better and easier than reconciliation. Meaning that I want to say stuff like, let's just treat everybody the same and act like that's going to make everything better. I don't want to face what I don't understand and don't know. I want the picture of equality without the hard work of repentance and contrition and reconciliation. This reveals a belief about God that his love can simply be slapped upon my life without confronting my sin. He is clear and the work of Christ is unflinching. All joy and treasures of this life, including racial harmony, always go through suffering in the cross. I confess that this is hard. And I often don't want to say that this is really hard. All of this, any conversation about race or responding to it publicly or through God's word, all of this is hard. Because it feels like I'm having to relearn what it means to be a human being and I'm almost 40 years old. What does that say about my entire life if I can barely figure that out now? It's embarrassing. I'm terrified to actually say that because I fear to actually say that because I fear it will only reveal more privilege and more fragility. And so I act strong before God, before all of you, before my family, and I don't say anything. I confess that I never questioned my seminary. When through four years of education, I was never assigned a book by a black Latinx or Asian theologian. I just allowed myself to believe that orthodoxy and Christian theology was penned by the brilliance of white Western reformers. It has only been in recent years when the works of Gardner Taylor, and Carl Ellis Jr. and Robert Smith Jr., Justo Gonzalez and Sun Chun Ra have opened my eyes to the fullness of the gospel. And there would be even more that I could put on this list if many schools like mine would have admitted men and women of color much sooner than they did. I confess that I want my confession to be the end. In other words, I naively trust that my confession, even here today, will have the power to change and not Christ. I sinfully desire confession to be the end and not the beginning of transformation in my life and the life of our church and neighbors and friends. I believe in the power of my words, church, more than I trust in the power of the words of Christ and the presence of his spirit. Let me please be clear about a few things. My confession is not the power, or any confession, yours or mine. Is, my confession is neither the conduit, if you will, of the power of Jesus' forgiveness and healing, nor the power that makes his kingdom come and show up on earth. That's what Paul says that the sainthood of God's people is. It's a result, not of our own will and our own morality, but of the love that came to us before we loved him, the calling that came to us while we were dead, and the establishment of our holiness by his grace. Let me be clear as well. I do not confess out of self-loathing in order to beat myself up. Neither self-loathing nor self-punishment produces the righteousness that God desires. I confess to you what God has made plain to me. My confession is grounded not, not in a rejection of, but in the reality of being loved, called, and being counted with the saints. I do not deny this in my confession. I'm trying to learn to accept it at a deeper level. And I'm not confessing because someone has made me feel guilty or because I want you to feel some kind of condemnation. I'm confessing because God has revealed my sin and his word tells me that when my sin is revealed, I must confess it. It reminds me when the apostle Peter was sitting at a table filled with a bunch of Gentiles and when some Jews who he respected, and Peter being Jewish, some Jews that he respected came and showed up. He quickly got up from the table and walked away from the Gentiles, fearing what they would think of him, interacting with those of a different religion and a different race, or at least religious background. 
Paul saw this as a gospel issue before he saw it as anything else. So Paul confronted him in Galatians 2 and said, you are out of step with the gospel. And I have heard the Lord say the same thing to me and this is why I confess it to you. The hope in this is that I can cling to the cross today. You can cling to the cross today. We as a people can cling to the cross today. Look again at Romans chapter one, verse seven. Here's the beauty and brilliance of it all. See, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, who are called to be saints, here's what Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel, Paul will say elsewhere, is that Jesus came not for the righteous, but for the sinner. Jesus came for the one who had a lot to confess. And so today I hide not in my sin and I beg you do not hide in your sin and in your shame. Do not hide in your desire to see more woke than the person next to you. Do not hide in your desire for justice in your way. Do not hide in your desire for a kind of reconciliation to hide and come in your timing, but hide in the cross. Hide in the cross because As James Cone said in the cross and the lynching tree, the gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in theory of salvation, but a story about God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed, which led to his death on a cross. What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, hope, he writes, out of despair. It's what we find when we come to the cross and confess our sin as as those who are loved, as those who are called, as those who are made holy in him. What we find at the cross is what Paul says to his first century readers. We find grace and we find peace. We are beloved and called and saints because grace and peace have been afforded to us by our heavenly father through the son who is love, who calls us and who makes us holy. So my friends, my brothers and sisters, may we hear God's timeless word of grace and peace that we might live as loved and called holy people right here, right now, even in the face of grave injustice, even as that injustice oozes from my own heart, the brokenness from my own heart, may we rest and confide in the grace and peace of the cross of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. And we confess and we repent. And we thank you that when we do so, Father, we find, again, why we are loved because of your love for us. Why we are called because of your grace to do so. Why we are holy because of your holiness. That we might find grace. And that we might find peace. And so may we be a people of grace. And who make peace. Who work for peace. We pray that for our time. We pray that for our city. We pray that for our neighborhood. And we pray that that kind of justice and power would roll like a mighty river right now, Father. For your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.